Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Star Trek Discovery. Season 3, Episode 6, Scavengers, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and I'm here to lead you on a scavenger hunt as we uncover everything that's happened this episode. And with me, as always, of course, is always, my co-host. Is my co-host. Didn't expect you. This isn't the mess hall. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> damn it, Linus. You interrupted my introduction. It's Mike Bloom. By the way, uh, so rudely interrupted by the Saurian, but I guess, you know, if he's just going to be popping about everywhere on the ship, why not into alternate realities as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much expect Linus is just going to show up sometime while I'm in the shower. And, you know, if you were, Ugh. yeah, you know, if if you were Linus, if you were really creepy, you could really milk this for all it's worth. Exactly. Like, oh, no, it was my badge, I swear. Uh, when really it's sort of like, oh, I want to be a little bit of a peeping Tom. I will say uh, this one of the I mean, the 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 Burnham book kiss is certainly something to talk about. But the point first point in which I I admirably and physically like pump my fist was not at that, but at blindness sort of breaking the tension because it's like the perfect comedic rule of threes, right? Mm-hmm. Like it happened twice before. And I'm like, oh, this would be awesome if it happened again. And they delivered, and then it happened, and they still did the kiss on top of that. I was really worried that they were just going to walk it back and be like, all right, well, we will, we'll forget about that awkward moment and move forward. But the fact that they had their cake, they ate it too. Mwah. All all the compliments to Star Trek Discovery and the Linus Interruptus. Yeah, I think that was one of a couple of moments where I thought I knew how they were going to steer into the trope. And then they end up not doing it. And this was kind of the first one. And really, it is more like real life because there are so many moments in pop culture where two people are about to kiss and then something interrupts them. And Mm -hmm. honestly, in real life, if you were about to kiss somebody and someone interrupted you to break the tension and then they went away, you'd just go ahead and pick up where you left off. Yeah, horniness does not uh, dissipate and more so like remains in the room and then it's able to suck back into yourselves once everything, all the awkwardness is out of the room. And sometimes, even when the awkwardness is still in the room, people can still get into the, the romantic mood, as it were, even if there's a brief moment of interruption. Yeah, I, I honestly, yeah, horniness like time and tide. Wait for no man. Exactly, exactly. And look, if there is one thing to be taken away from this is that Michael Burnham will go the extra distance for a little bit of nookie or bookie, if you will, even if it's at the expense of trust with some of her most closest confidants. Well, do we want to just start here with the, yeah, with the burn book of it all? Yeah, let, let's start here because um, I mean, I would love to talk about the burn book of it all, but I do want to sort of uh, parse this conversation in the title of a piece and a piece that was written by a colleague of mine at CBR.com, Sam Stone who wrote a piece entitled uh, Star Trek, Burnham Goes Rogue Has Become Discoveries They Shut Down the X-Files. 
And he makes a point that it seems like in each of Disco's three seasons, there seems to be some sort of storyline that happens at some point of Michael Burnham's doing something against Starfleet's wishes. It bristles with the rest of the crew, even though it's the right thing, it's done for the wrong reasons. And so I guess even before we get into the actual romantic payoff of it all, what was your reaction to her going on this rogue mission? Do you agree with Sam Stone? Did, did it echo to you moments from the Shenzhou, for instance, from those first two episodes? Well, yeah, I think it it is really kind of mind boggling to me that Burnham is still allowed to be in Starfleet and serve on a ship. And, you know, she I guess she did her time for the first time she did this, but it seems like that's just Burnham's going to burn him. She's going to go in mm-hmm. and take the rules and break them. But I think it would be unfair to say she's the only one that ever does this. It feels like the whole theme of Star Trek is we have a code and a set of rules and they're in place and that's what makes people happy. But then everybody goes in and breaks those rules and is somehow rewarded for them. Right. I mean, that's the thing is that I, I don't think we can necessarily uh, chide Michael Burnham with one hand and pride James T. Kirk or Benjamin Sisko as another or Benjamin Sisko or Jean-Luc Picard, yeah. three men who were all about breaking the rules that were set forth by them by the hires up uh, in expense for what they felt was the greater good. Uh, I wonder if it's because it's more of a serialized format and less of an episodic format, because Sam Stone alleges that like, oh, this means that there's no character growth on behalf of Michael Burnham, which I would disagree with. I, I think it's fine that she defaults back into certain behaviors. And I think what I, I'm personally fine with, particularly when it comes to this instance, is that I feel like this was done for different motivations than, for example, the Battle of the Binary Stars. Whereas more so Michael being like, I'm right, I know I'm right, so screw you, Giorgio, I'm going to try to stage a coup here. Versus this, which is, whether she admits to or not, she was partially at least driven by her heart to do what she did. And I think that that's a significantly different motivator for the character that we've ever seen before. And and so, I don't know, I, I personally did not... I think get as annoyed with Michael Burnham in this episode as I haven't taken the temperature of the internet, but as I can probably assume a lot of Trekkies did in this episode. And maybe because in my opinion, it had a different motivation to it. I I was able to forgive it more than maybe previous circumstances, which would feel more repetitive. Yeah. Mike, and the thing that I was really, the thing I struggled with for a while, and I've had a couple of days to sit with this and kind of, I don't know if, if I'm, if I'm like fan wanking it or if I'm really thinking of something that is helpful, but I was having a hard time reconciling how we frequently see Michael Burnham breaking all the rules with the Michael Burnham that was raised in a strict ass household by freaking Vulcans. <laughs> like, why is she so keen to go out and do her own thing when she was raised by Vulcans? But then I thought about Maybe that is the Vulcan way. I think the Vulcan way is mm. very much neutral good. It's like right. we're going to do – like who cares what other rules people have set forth for us? We're going to do the logical thing. And at every turn, the thing that Michael does is to her the logical thing. Right. So it's less about loyalty and it's more about logic Yes, to your point. And I think some people might assume that's one and the same of like it's logical to do what Starfleet commands you to do. But at the same time, if there is this gut instinct in her that I'm assuming, to your point, you know, Sarah has has raised in her of go with your gut because you can trust your logic, you can trust your senses, then she is going to be so driven to do that that she will constantly make 
these betrayals, even if it is affronting to the people that that is that are closest to her. Hell, even when Saru demoted her, her response is that totally makes sense. You know, yeah. again, it's it's a very logical reaction. You take you can't take the Vulcan out of the girl. Yeah, it, it's true. And I think we've seen Spock have a few moments of that are similar to this, where he does the thing that it is not the thing he was told to do, but it's the thing that he thinks is the right thing to do. And I think it it is very much in line with what we've seen out of Vulcan behavior. Right. That's the menagerie, yeah. right? It's like Spock goes rogue, does this whole thing for the Telosians to show like Captain Pike's true thing and like get him in this this paradise. So, yeah, I mean, it's all about one of the beauty of Star Trek is is the philosophical ideas of like, what are means to an end? And are they worth it? And again, I was I was happy to see the rogue mission because even though Sam might bring up that it's a seasonal thing, it's been a long time since we've had one. And I, again, I feel like this was for different reasons. It was done with a different party. You know, she now sort of had a co-conspirator and someone who will similarly go rogue. And I guess the other big question is, you know, aside from her demotion, which is an entirely different subject on its own, do you think there should be consequences? Let me I'll put it this way, Jess. Should Michael Burnham leave Starfleet at this point, considering everything that's happened in the gap year that she took? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that she was so excited to get back to Starfleet. I buy that she was very excited to see her friends, but she has spent the whole year on, you know, on space rumspringa, as we've discussed before. I don't know that having that much freedom and having a job of her own to do, I don't know if she's, I I don't know if I would be so keen to jump right back into the Starfleet way, except for the fact that I think it gets her closer to the mission that she's been pursuing this past year. That's the thing is I was thinking as well of like, look, she might as well just like become a courier again. She was clearly having more fun that way and was able to uh, exert maybe more nebulous deeds without needing to worry about answering to a higher power. But at the same time, she knows that there probably is either highly confidential information about the burden that could help her investigation or, you know, just having access to so many resources in general. You're more likely to do that as a Federation person than as a non-Federation person. So for now, she might just sort of be lying in wait, hoping to to use the room, as it were, until she can get an answer from the burn. But at the same time, as we've seen this episode and even the last episode, she just can't help being herself. You know, I, I do wonder if it's just a matter for Admiral Vance of him being so damn short-staffed that he hasn't let her go already. Yeah, I'm surprised that Vance said to Saru, this is your problem. You you handle your rogue crew member. I'm surprised mm-hmm. he didn't just hand it down like, yeah, she's going to the brig. I wonder if, again, it's it's a matter for him. And, and you know, I think I've come around on uh on vance or admiral fridge (laughs) if you will just use that shorthand uh because i think you know last week we're like oh he's too much of a hard ass but i think especially in the first scene of this week when we get to see sort of like the standing meeting that he seemingly does every day the briefing like just how sol the new federation is with all their limited resources that i could sort of understand his just exasperation and everything like jesse and i both had many experiences in our lives so far where it's like because you have to concentrate so hard on like a few very intense things the other things even though they might be important to other people you cannot give a lick about and so i sort of do understand admiral fridge's like impatience or just general like ungraciousness towards the 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 type of malarkey that discovery is up to right now because like yeah we'll use you as rapid responders but like i i don't i don't care 
Like, I, I, please don't speak up to me. I have one job for you and you didn't do that job. So, you know, shame on you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, Mike, that you invoke malarkey because I do feel like the message of this episode that the people in charge are so busy putting out the 100 other fires that they might not get to your fire immediately. That is a very cogent message for the times we are about to live in. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think everyone needs to understand like, please be aware of other people's, you know, mental states at this time. I hope that, you know, Admiral Fridge is seeing a nice hollow counselor about all the stuff that he's undergoing. Because I do fear, I, you know what, I would not be surprised if his hair wasn't gray before he took his position. I'll say that much. Yep, it's true. I, I think pretty much every admiral turns gray eventually. Um yeah, exactly. Uh, or or their hair just falls out and then their head explodes because there was actually <laughs> little bugs living inside them. But yeah, I mean, it, it was surprisingly <laughs> little, little fridge this week. But I guess I'm assuming he's still going to be a person moving forward. Right. I would not be surprised if like it just continues to be them almost like um like a, a 21 Jump Street thing. Like they go see the chief, you know, <laughs> and he like hands down the mission and then they go on their mission. And then they come back. And he's like, good work or bad work. This is what we found out about the burn. Now go back to your ship. Take a shower, throw in the towel. Yeah, I could see him kind of fulfilling that purpose, uh, especially like as he entrusts Disco with more and more things to tackle. I think he does kind of become this sort of like, or even um, like the chief in Carvin San Diego. Yeah, exactly. We just get a, a view screen, even though that's so antiquated uh, in the 32nd century of, of you know, him at the, at the change, be like, great work, gumshoes. You figured out where the burn was. <laughs> got the warrant. Yeah. Well, you know, that little view screen, that was how Star Trek was for a very long time. And it's not surprising that they just go back to that. Yeah, exactly. Everything old is is new again. But I guess we should get back to the to the burn book of it all, Jess, because we talked about this a few episodes ago uh, when when book was last seen of, you know, the whole lady and gentleman doth protest too much of them being adamantly insistent that there were no romantic interests there. Are, are you what are your feelings about them finally acting on those interests after only, you know, a few episodes of seeing them? Did you, were you surprised it was this soon? I'm not surprised. I'm actually more surprised that they managed to be in close proximity to one another for an entire year with this bubbling below the surface. Like, honestly, I would be I would be less surprised to find out they did it within three days of meeting. And mm. they've continued to be a thing. And Burnham's just keeping this on the down low because she doesn't want to everybody to think that she's, you know, that she's going to be distracted by it. Yeah, I mean, there's a there was a clip in the ready room this week, but they sort of talked about the arc between these two, particularly in this episode. And according to David Ajala, he says the book side of things is that the the rescue operation that Michael risked so much to rescue him was like the light switch in his head of, Oh, she cares about me this much. And so he decides to like fall for her in that moment. Uh, my words, not his, but much like typical men, I think he is a little bit of like slow to the trigger. And so I could imagine to your point, if Michael had been sort of dealing with these feelings a lot more, which is why she was continually dismissive when Giorgio really kept like poking that bear uh, when they were on his ship early in the episode. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could I could buy that um, that Burnham's Vulcan impulses keep her from 
getting too involved with things. I guess I'd buy it more if I hadn't seen her fall headlong for Ash Tyler. Right. I, I was, well, was going to say, I think that might be an influencer as well, though, of her being like, all right, well, I have feelings for him, but like, look what happened the last time. Look, I don't think this guy is a Klingon in disguise, but who the hell knows in the 32nd century? Now, why is it every guy I fall in love with turns out to be either gay or a secret Klingon? It's one or the other. It's one really. or the other. We, we, we should have seen the uh, the subplot where she holds a candle for Stamets yeah. for a little while before realizing well, things. Yeah, it could have been could have been between seasons. Like, there's going to be a short trek about that. And Stamets is like, "Yeah, I'm married. Go away." Yeah, or like um that episode. Oh, what is it? The the Rascals episode from TNG where like they all turn younger. Imagine oh, like yeah. they get Stamets and Michael Burnham younger, and Michael Burnham is now like having a, a little crush on young Stamets, even though things are. Not exactly, uh, she's not exactly, her eyes are not open in that moment to what's happening. It's like they're the theater kids in Pen 15. Exactly, exactly. They're just, there's all sorts of mixed up there. But you know what? She has found her guy at the moment here in, in book. And I thought it was, it was a very like romantic, very like adventurous kiss, which I feel like is also very, um, very reflective of the general tone of disco as well. That is a little more melodramatic, but also more sweeping than I think we've seen of these romantic interactions in previous series. I guess I thought the kiss was like surprisingly not as hot as I thought it was going to be. Did it help or hurt that we had not only one shot of a kiss, but like se- a montage of several shots of them like kissing and then them stopping and looking at each other? Did that did the whole crossfade help that at all? It did a bit. But like that first moment, like you want that like great Gatsby tuning fork on a star thing happening. And it just maybe that's Linus's fault. Maybe I'll just blame Linus for that. Like they were a little off their game, but then they kind of over time, they crossfaded a few times and they figured it out. Yeah, exactly. I think you blame Linus because I think Book had the whole idea of like, I'm going to stop the turbo lift. I'm going to sweep her off her feet quite literally. Here comes the Saurian to bust up that party. But if you're Book, you also have to know that since everyone has a personal transporter, that there's a very good chance that's going to happen much more often than it would back in the day. Yeah, and I think he would know that better than Burnham because they're just now getting used to that. Yeah, exactly. I I have a fan fiction thing. Like, we're going to go. I wish we had the fan fiction audio drop handy (laughs) because I'm going to go down a path where maybe Book is reluctant to get romantically involved with people because his empath qualities kind of make that a little bit too much for him. Interesting. How much of the animalistic qualities in Book's power set is visible within humans, right? Could that mean that he just has a connection with everybody? Yeah, I mean, he might like whoever you're in close proximity to, you can or maybe you can turn it on and off. I'm not sure how it works, but I don't know, maybe I'm stealing that from Octavia Butler, but I I wouldn't be surprised like they can't just drop that he can telepathically connect with space I mean, worms. They, they seem to. We have really not and I, we still don't know if it was like generally with the transworms or just with life and with nature. I mean, I guess That segues into another question. What is the future of Book and Burnham here? Because again, to your point, we're going to assume that Burnham stays on Discovery, albeit in a more limited role than before. Is is like Book now going to be a sort of like side ally of the new Federation? Or is he going to get dismissed again and show up a few episodes from now? I think this might be a Han Solo situation where he is not of them. So he can do their dirty work for them for the right price. Like, just pay him a little Mm. bit of dilithium and send him out to get the thing, which, you know, he was sort of doing already. What is it about these rogue people in their flat ships flying in to save the day? (laughs) I don't know. I think a flat ship almost like pre-qualifies you for the role. 
Yeah, there was that really fun moment when, you know, uh, Book and that Andorian guy get saved by Giorgio and Burnham flying the ship. And they did, like, the vertical ship going through. And it was like, this is so Millennium Falcon, but I still love it. Yeah. I mean, we have... We have stopped down several times over the course of this podcast to talk about the fact that this is a very Star Warsy Star Trek season. And I honestly think this whole side quest to go get the black box, this felt more like a Star Wars world than a Star Trek world. Could be worse. It could have been a prison slash casino that they had to get books back from. <laughs> yeah. The less we say about Solo, the better. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, that plot in The Last Jedi, too. Yeah. Uh, did you have any thoughts about that that planet, by the way? I mean, I guess the it's a bit mythology building in that we found out more about this emerald chain, which we sort of saw in the mercantile in the first episode. And we had like mentioned last week, it seemed to have gone destroyed. But I guess if we want sort of like uh, a microcosm of who the big bad of Disco Season 3 might be, at least from the Federation's perspective, here it is. Yeah, I think it's another one of those things where you can pay attention to it and track all these little pieces that are dropped on you, or you can just kind of sit back and let the episode wash over you. And the more we get into it, they'll just keep telling you, like, remember when we talked about this? This is coming back up again. Yeah, trust the previously on. They really tend to almost like, uh, I don't know, like almost obtrusively so sometimes be like yeah. hey remember this thing from 20 episodes ago you're gonna want to remember it for this time yeah i and i love it when shows give you something from five seasons back in the previous season you're like oh that's a thing now i gotta remember that it's been a while yeah. so i have to i have to pay more attention but there's, looking at you benjamin stark yeah yeah for real there's two instances where i think this is coming up and i'm sure we're going to talk about the second one in a minute but I do think this Emerald Chain business, like they, they kind of drop in. They kept saying the name Osira over and over and over. And it's like, mm-hmm. you can't just keep talking about someone you don't see this episode without bringing her in to get her revenge at some point. So I think yeah. that will probably be, she might even be the big bad, like the control or the Lorca of the season. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if it could be, maybe not the big bad, but I, I could see something where like Osiris complicates something, right? It's like, oh, we have a, the last black box that we need for the burn. Oh, wait, Osiris holding on to it. And then maybe we'll actually see something similar to like that Picard episode uh, where they, you know, beamed in, like stole that information and then beamed back out again. Uh, but, you know, kicking and punching there along the way. Because I, I did find it weird. We had Osiris mentioned last episode. This week, we met her outright nephew, who seemed like a mega douche. Yeah. So I, I'd be intrigued to find out who she is. Maybe there's going to be a big reveal that, like, she's a distant relative of one of our current characters or something. Yeah, I mean, Book said that most of his relatives are douchebags. Yeah, I guess I think that I think we figured out that the world or the universe is sort of full of douchebags, right? Between, like, the, the when stuff from episode two so I think maybe the general theme is like, yeah, the universe is kind of full of assholes right now. And the, the Federation's just trying to sort of cut a path of good through all that. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment. I think, you know, in a world where late stage capitalism has reared its head again to the point where slavery is in effect on planets and people are, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel just to make ends meet, I think – I think it's safe to say that is kind of like a lush breeding ground for douchebags. And it's just going to be like the rest of the season is just rooting out the douchebags. I was a little confused about this planet. Uh, 
because you know obviously there was there was like a prison slave labor system as you talk about but like in the undercover mission that that Giorgio and Michael were doing they seemed to just be able to like freely walk around and book and book and Michael even had like a sidebar happening you would think for a prison colony it would be even more tightly policed than it currently is with the trackers and the fence and those big thugs holding guns well i think I think they were relying on the trackers to tell you if somebody was out of line. And it's one of those things like, well, where are you going to go? Like, you're going to mm. go through the fence to the toxic waste dump. Like, that's yeah. – it's really – when there's a ship right there to get everybody, that's one thing. Uh, but they don't know that. Like, they just they just see dilithium. And they've got, like, the dollar signs that are dilithium-shaped in their eyes. And it's like, of course, they have people coming down here to shop all the time. And – just because one of them is off somewhere looking for things to buy with their massive amounts of dilithium. I think the other thing they figured was we can just take these people's dilithium and make them slaves here and that'll be cool. Right. Yeah, I do wonder how many times they've they've done that trick, you know, because you have to imagine there's a story behind each and every person that's there. I know that the, the douche nephew was like, oh, you know, these people owe us something. But Book obviously didn't. My assumption is that he like went to that planet scouting out for clues found it, probably got caught, and then said, like, oh, as punishment, you're going to, you're you're one of us now. Uh, I, you know, I will also say, Jess, uh, considering the, the stuff I've been watching as of late, I was very surprised that that fence cut that guy's head off instead of just merely having him bleed from the ears and foam from the mouth, and then it turns out that he's alive, and he's going to come back, like, three more times and die three more times. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see anybody enter 7-7, but I guess that's a thing that could happen. But yeah, I'm going to bring in some other esoteric examples, Mike, because I feel like in the 80s, this was a trope that I saw in several different drama series, um, you know, mm. back when I was six years old watching drama series, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I remember distinctly, I think it was an episode of MacGyver that kind of dove into this kind of local backwater for-profit prison system where – oh, and this happened in My Cousin Vinny too, as a matter of fact, to some degree. Mm -hmm. But they would just have somebody pulling through town, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Cop pulls yeah, them yeah, over yeah. for a broken taillight or something and is like, okay, well, this doesn't check out. I got to put you in jail. And then there's these like prison labor camps that they end up getting put in. And because it's the middle of nowhere and these guys aren't from around there, they're just kind of stuck there. And that was yeah. that was definitely an episode of MacGyver, and then he scienced his way out of it. Um, but I think that is that is something that you've seen where I would not be surprised if this was a similar situation where Book came down. And he's like, I'm going to use my little bit of dilithium to buy this black box, and I'm you know I'm shopping for black boxes, and he's like in the black box department, and then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, whoops, we stuck a tracker on you. Now you're a slave. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Like that's that's sort of like the honey trap that they've been or the honey pot. I know they they say like, oh, we they we they turn away business because they sort of want to keep their business their own. But I, I can imagine more often than not they use that to if they're really running thin on the prisoners, they're like, well, let's just sort of uh you know put out a want ad and bring in as many people as we can and track them. Speaking of prisoners, uh, how much do we think that this this Ren this Andorian guy Sans Antennae is going to become? of importance because I can imagine if you're looking for someone who knows about the Emerald chain, I mean, this guy was raised in it. Yeah. I think it was, this was really interesting to me, Mike, because this was another one of those instances where I thought I knew what was going to happen. And then I really did not like the whole thing where they say, Oh, he led everybody in a rebellion and now they've broken him. 
Mm-hmm. And we all hate him now. It's like, oh, well, the guy everybody hates is clearly going to have a big capital M moment of <laughs> big capital M moment of uh, redemption before he dies saving everybody else. And I'm like, oh, there it is. He jumped. Yep, he took the shot. Yep, jumped in front of the cannon blast. Oh, yep, he died because he needs to be rede- redeemed. And oh, wait, no, he didn't die. That's the surprise. Yeah. Hey. Star Trek's like, you thought you knew where this was going, but you don't. He's going to be more important. And I kind of loved that as well. Yeah, I think that, I mean, again, it it makes sense if there is going to be dual plots about the bird and maybe the Emerald Chain. I would imagine that from uh, Admiral Fridge's perspective, I think the Emerald Chain takes much more precedence than the burn at this moment, because it seems like they are laying waste or at least grabbing hold of various planets in the area, which is no good. Did you know? The fun casting behind Ren's character, which might be another reason why he's sticking around. No, I didn't recognize him, Mike. So Ren is played by an actor called Noah Aberback-Katz, who is the husband of Mary Wiseman. Huh. Oh, he's a Juilliard guy. He is, yeah. yeah. So he, 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 they went to Juilliard together yeah, well, and uh, they, yeah. they got married last year. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that they were together, but that name rings a bell because, Mike, I... I'm sure that the listeners don't necessarily know this, or it might have come up at some point, but I worked at Juilliard for three and a half years, and the first year that I was there was the last year that uh, Mary Chifo and Mary Wiseman were in the same class together at Juilliard and both ended up on Star Trek Discovery. Um, mm-hmm. And that class of that class of students, uh, with the drama class, it's very small. Like, there's 24 students in a class, I think, and... They are very much, um, you know, their names of all the drama students if you have to do any work at all with the drama department. And so I heard that mm. name, I'm like, oh, yeah, he was at Juilliard. So, yeah, pretty much anybody that was at Juilliard in the drama department while I was there, if they show up on a TV show, I don't even, I never even really interacted with any of them, but I know who they all are because right. of that work. And in fact, Mary Wiseman was in a production of Our Town that. We took photos from and had them blown up big on the side of the Juilliard building. So I walked Whoa. by Mary Wiseman every day for a year, and then she ended up on Star Trek many years later. Oh, I was going to say, so that was before Star Trek. I thought it was like a thing of like, look at our alumni. No. They're in major series now. Not even. Um, at the Juilliard Drama Department, you really don't. you don't do anything for the public until your third year in the program. And then... Mm. In the fourth year, everybody is cast in plays, and they put on several plays over the course of the year. And so I think it was like her third year debut, and it was just like such a striking photo that really exemplified what the drama department was. So they used it in all the literature, and it was on the side of the building. Yeah, Star Trek Discovery, for some reason, loves to pluck people right out of school. Because you talked about Mary Wiseman and Mary Chifo, both like fresh from Juilliard. I know that Blue Del Barrio... I, I don't think they even had graduated yet from the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art before they had gotten cast and filmed on Star Trek Discovery. So they are willing to to go young and seek young talent out, which, again, feels uh, not exactly the same as usual Star Trek, where they sort of like plumb the desk of like, which which older, you know, pretty well-known actors are we going to bring in to put in the captain's chair? Well, you know, Mike, that was not necessarily the case back in the next-gen days. And I think maybe a little bit more in Deep Space Nine, they were like, oh, well, Avery Brooks has been in whatever 
crime series that was the Spencer for Hire, I think. Yeah, I think that was yeah. that's what it was. He'd been in a few things, but they really Star Trek doesn't like to bring in someone who's super duper famous because they want them to be able to like bring to the role, like to be the role and kind of embody it in a way that I think other shows are like, no, we want to sell you on this star. And mm. the other thing, like, I, I think we got to go to the galaxy quest of it all. Once you are in Star Trek, that is who you are to most people. True. Like, you know, Patrick Stewart has sort of transcended this, but sort of not. He does some yeah. Shakespeare. He's still gone back to the stage and he's done a few other projects, but he's gone. He's gone to the chair, if you will. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, but he's always going to be Picard. And same, like Leonard Nimoy tried to get away from it and he couldn't, like he had a bio, biography <laughs> I, I, called I, I Am Not yeah. Spock. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Um, and you know, you got Shatner doing TJ Hooker, but nobody goes up to Shatner is like, Hey, you were in TJ Hooker. That was awesome. Right. Yeah. So that's part of it, I think. And part of it is like the role itself is going to be someone who's younger. So you want to bring someone in who's very fresh and, and can bring some, that fresh energy to the role. And, I think when you sign on to Star Trek, I think you know that that's going to be your thing for the rest of your life. Yeah, even if, even if you're Doug Jones, who's known for like a lot more stuff, but you wouldn't know it just right. based on the fact he's always in prosthetics. Right. So yeah, he's like he's like the second most known motion capture actor. Yeah, he really is. And then granted, like it's a pretty big gap, but like just it's always one of those things where when you look at Doug Jones' resume and you're it's just. It is absolutely stunning and staggering. It's just a matter of you wouldn't know him if you saw if you passed him by on the street. Yeah. And it's not to discount Anthony Rapp, for instance, or I still can't look at Hugh Culber and not see my so-called life. And of course, Mm -hmm. Sneakwa Martin Green was amazing in The Walking Dead. But now they're Star Trek and that's going to be their thing for the rest of their lives. So I, I want to talk about Saru for a little bit, actually, because we should probably talk about that that final scene, you know, the big way that things conclude, which, I mean, I think we were all sort of expecting it, right? Did did you, were you surprised at all by the demotion that happened at the end of the episode? Yeah, I was a little surprised because, like, when does Michael Burnham ever have to face consequences for her actions? Like, the first episode of the series, and then really not much since then. Right, but I think it's interesting that Saru invoked that as well, right? That he's like, I thought once that was done, she that, that had been in the past. And it's it's clear here that, like you said, this is less so a call down from Admiral Fridge being like, shame on you, you're fired. And more so Saru's personal decisions feeling very hurt. And again, this is a guy that usually does not invest that much emotion in his work, but it did seem like he was, throughout the entire episode, just genu- genuinely crushed by the fact that who he thought was his friend and probably the the person he trusts the most on this ship directly disobeyed his orders, even if they were for what she thought was a good mission. Yeah. And not only that, it really forced him into a terrible corner because yeah. he pretty much had to disavow everything she was doing and or risk looking very bad to Admiral Fridge. So, yeah, and it was a catch 22, yeah. right? Because like if if he didn't, then he would get saddled for the blame. But if he did, now he's coming across of like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, the person that, that runs the ship when I'm not around, she's known for just doing what she wants yeah. at certain times. It really was a, a terrible position. So I, I wrote an article for CBR.com this week as to who may be the new number one. I have a leading candidate. But before I do that, I would love to hear your thoughts. Have been there there been any ideas percolating as to who might fill that spot now that Burnham's been demoted? Well, there's who it might be. Who 
I have some, I have some who it might be, and I have some long shots, and I have who mm-hmm. it should be. Okay. All right. Give me the, give me this, give me, let's start with the long shots because I want to hear your sort of pie in the sky thoughts here. Why do we keep getting tiny tastes of Detmer every episode if they're not going to give her something new to do? So I think Detmer is a long shot for the role because she Mm. is relatively junior, but she also, she knows the ship inside and out. She keeps saying, I don't get credit for what I do. I feel like that is kind of Saru's moment to say, okay, here's a promotion be my xo con is not very stable right yeah, now yeah well but she's putting up a apart from the part the point where she was screaming about stamps's blood being all over the floor of the ship <laughs> apart from that and i and i think i think that will i think saru would overlook that to be like you're a capable officer and i think mm-hmm. there may be like kind of an undercurrent of we gave her more responsibility but she really can't handle it and she's gonna screw it up to the point where we want michael burnham back that could be something i mm-hmm. think the person that saru trusts the most on the ship would it would be a huge jump up and i don't think she's qualified necessarily but i could see him offering it to tilly that's that's my pick right now. And I, I absolutely agree that on paper, it is bananas to go from an ensign to the rank of commander and number one, not even in like the lower deck sense. <laughs> would that ever happen? But A, this is totally unconventional in just the, the times that they're living in. And B, there was something about the scene between the two of them this episode that like really resonated for me. Like Tilly was so confident. She was just standing there giving out orders to like reprogram the spore drive. And this is an ensign. Mm -hmm. And I I do wonder if like, she has just grown leaps and bounds. You know, there's a reason why Saru picked her for that away mission back in episode two. So I could very easily see it happen. And she also sort of passed the test in this episode in that conversation they had where she's like, listen, you know, um, I care about Michael probably most on it out of anyone on the ship, but even I'll admit, like save your own ass here. You, you have to rat her out. And I, I do wonder if Saru is not necessarily going to go by the book, as it were, he might act- actually lean towards that person. Because like you said, if trust is an issue, she's the person he trusts most. And she is showing more and more capabilities of someone that could eventually run a ship. Maybe not tomorrow, but maybe she'll be forced to. Yeah, I I definitely. That's sort of like a Wesley Crusher situation where. Mm hmm. You know, she's probably too young for the responsibility, but she's going to get it anyway because she's just so awesome. That's certainly a possibility. I'm also going to put forth who's the highest ranking person on the ship that we know about? Commander Jet Reno. That's who it should be. Yeah, Reno is another option on mine as well, because I I thought that, you know, I think you – when it comes to just the the temperament, you want someone who has like a cool head mm-hmm. and Jet Reno has the coolest head. Like I have not seen her get frazzled even when her back was in a tizzy. The only downside is that I, I do not think she has the best people skills. <laughs> no, that's true. Uh, or at least, you know, she, maybe she'll have to start memorizing Ensign's names uh, or at least remembering them when they tell them to her if she wants to serve that position. And she also does seem like the Chief O'Brien type of like, hey, I'm just fine being that that, you know. Uh, Starfleet-esque grease monkey. I don't want to necessarily be on the bridge anytime soon. There is that, but she's got such a high rank for... I can't remember if she's yeah. lieutenant commander or if she's actual full commander, but she is... You know, the, O'Brien was never... He was never a commissioned officer. Like, he was 
you know, they called him Chief O'Brien, but, and he had like some, he had a huge amount of responsibility, but he was still an enlisted man. And Mm -hmm. Reno is on the officer track. So it seems to me that that is who the logical pick would be. But you do bring up a good point that Saru needs someone to support him in all the ways that he finds himself a little bit deficient. And I think, I think he's going to want someone who has people skills in spades because he still has trouble with that. So let me bring up somebody that actually sort of brings up one of the subplots of this episode, because I don't think realistically Stamets could ever be a number one, considering just how Mm -hmm. important he is to the black alert of it all. But I do find it interesting that this episode has him Mm -hmm. growing some people's skills, right? That this this very grumpy cat Stamets is able to actually reach out and make a friend for once that, that we've seen so far. And I do think he is probably the most knowledgeable person on the ship, I, I think he, I can't remember if he's, I don't think he's a commander. I think he might be a lieutenant commander or even just a lieutenant. Uh, but I mean, obviously, the ship is specialized in the spore drive, which he literally is right now. I, I do wonder if there is something weird about in, in there about going unorthodox and saying like, hey, you are probably the most important part of the ship. Don't tell Detmer. It would make sense for you to be my number one so that like we were constantly incommunicado about everything that was happening. Yeah. That that is true. He is a lieutenant commander, so mm-hmm. that also makes sense. Like he's certainly qualified for it, um, but I think he probably also he seems like he has a lot to do as well. Yeah, that's true. And I, now he has these like he doesn't have the the little uh, bits anymore in his arms. He gets to <laughs> stick his hand in Ublek to to drive the the spore drive, which is was so weird. Dr. Seuss call out. Nice one. It was just so odd of like Adira being, you know, the, the whole theme of this episode was like, look at all the upgrades that, the, that you know, pimp my ride discovery style, you know, uh, detached nacelles. Everyone gets these cool hollow badges slash tricorders slash personal transporters. And now Stamets, you just get to reach your hand in Gak to <laughs> steer the spore drive now instead of it injecting itself directly into yourself. And somebody on Reddit had a great comment that I'm surprised we didn't spend 10 minutes on everybody geeking out about how awesome all the new tech was. Yeah, they, they had a lot to get to. Otherwise, I could have very easily seen that in, in, in an echo of last week of yeah. being like, my God, I never thought this would exist before. Yeah, it's really funny how much how much everybody's just like awed by the technology. Like, ooh, gadgets. Like, look, we can move this light around, like just using our minds. And oh, wow, you don't have to have the things on your arms anymore. And it's I, it makes sense because I think like the first thing you would do if you went to the future is like put the Mr. Fusion on your flux capacitor. Mm hmm. Exactly. I do like also Detmer sort of being like the Amish of the group being like, do we really need all this, guys? Yeah. Well, that's also Detmer. It's uh, maybe they're just going to have to explain like why she didn't immediately go get her cyborg stuff taken out of her face. That's actually a good point. Maybe maybe it's uh, it's sort of like the uh, again, sort of like the 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 Mariner from Lower Decks, right? Of like, I like to be scarred because it reminds me of something which. You know, again, when make Michael's, I'm I'm actually intrigued with the fact that Saru was the one who felt the brunt of Michael Burnham's betrayer, and not someone like Detmer, mm-hmm. who also was aboard the Shenjo and direct suffered direct bodily harm as a result of what she did. Yeah, I'm surprised that that doesn't come up more often because I'd be I'd be mad. Like, look at this shit on my face. It is your fault, and it would it'd be, every day it would be a reminder of. It'd just be like. Every, it, it'd be like Harry Potter's scar burning every time she passed Michael Burnham. It's like, oh, you're the reason I have this. 
Yeah, we had it for a few episodes yeah. in Disco Season 1 when now she came aboard. Now she's just mad but that, <laughs> Yeah, but that was when everybody was, like, giving Michael Byrne the stink yeah. guy, right? And she eventually came around when she's like, oh, yeah, I forgot, Michael, you're actually, like, a, a good officer, so, like, I'll I'll forgive you this time. But throw that on top of, like, the saddlebag of Detmer's issues at this point. Yeah. Like, except for the part where you gave me massive head trauma, and now that you take out part of my skull and replace it with machinery, you're pretty good. Yeah. So what do we think? Because we talked about the Nilsson stuff last week. Do we do we think there's there's any chance that she would be because you would think I think just from a pure line of succession thing, she would be the obvious one to promote to number one if she is indeed the person that's left in charge when those two are gone. But I don't know just from a pure character visibility perspective if it's going to happen. Yeah, that could be. That's interesting that she's gotten kind of the personal story bump recently. Mm -hmm. And I I have to imagine, well, she's just a lieutenant. So I think there's is there is some precedent for giving giving the con to lieutenants while you're out doing other stuff. I think that is something that's happened before. And I, I could see it like from a logic point of view, that makes a little bit more sense than putting Tilly in that role. Mm -hmm. Um just because you know, she's higher rank. She's been in Starfleet longer. She has run things occasionally before. So, yeah, the only thing is, like, we don't know her. I assume right. that that Saru knows her perfectly well and would be like, yeah, she's fine. Um, But I really don't think we have enough data. I think the new XO is going to be someone that we know very well. So here's my question, then. What if there is new, no new XO? Because, look, Discovery, when it comes to command, has always been just enigmatic compared to other series, to the point where we've had a rotating panel of captains over the first two seasons. Could there just be, you know, Saru saying, hey, it sucks to lose Michael. I really could have used her help. I'm just going to take it all on the chin right now. Like you said, I have Nielsen that I can give the, the con to sometimes if I have to step off the ship. But for now, there is going to be no number one. That's that's interesting. It's like Dumbledore saying there's no defense against the dark arts teacher this year. Yeah, exactly. Or, or maybe it's this idea of like, hey, this is enigmatic of, or uh, representative of the fact that everyone's just so short staffed in the Federation that like we can't afford to have a first officer. It'd be a little insulting because they could like we just talked about. He could clearly hire somebody, but. Maybe that also speaks to Saru not trusting in everyone enough to to feel like he should have someone to service sort of like his his you know his uh his bouncing board to to talk with. Well that makes that that is a really interesting point that you just brought up Mike because what if what if there is some tension next week like what if Admiral Fridge is like oh you don't have an XO anymore let me give you one and Saru is like I don't know if I want any future people getting their future germs all over my ship. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, when I was coming up with the list for my article, like I was thinking maybe there could be a chance that like a Lieutenant Willa mm -hmm. ends up becoming the XO because it could be this idea of like, you don't know the future. She does. She doesn't know the ship. You do. But I do wonder if, you know, for as much as, as Saru's been beating the drum the past two weeks of like Discovery must stay together. Don't break us up. I don't know how accepting he would be of like, yeah, bring in an outsider yeah. into this. We do it all the time. But like, really, I want the person I go to directly to be someone who doesn't know the ship from Adam. Yeah, I, I think I, I could see that being a source of tension. Plus, to bring the perspective of I'm a future person and I know the future, but not the ship. That's why we have Adira, right? Yeah, exactly. Speaking of which, uh, we talked about it before with Samus, but did you have any thoughts about 
their subplot this episode where they decided to, to finally come clean to Stamets and happen to pick the right person about this idea of I see dead people. Yeah, that is really interesting because I think this is sort of something and I'm going to bring up something that I've brought up, I think, on every podcast I've ever done. Uh, it is, but it's just a convenient and clean way of talking about this. I think a show that did this narratively really well is Parks and Recreation. They would do like there would be episodes. In fact, this was most episodes. They would just take two random members of the gang and put mm -hmm. them together. And their challenge would be, what do these people have in common? What do you think they would do together? How would they relate to each other? Where would they find the common ground? Mm -hmm. And it would lead, lead to some really interesting things like, you know, you, that's where you get um, – that's where you get treat yourself and that's where right. you get um, – I think that's where you get like the romantic pairing of Andy and April. I think that comes mm -hmm. out of that that idea and you have a way to really get to know your characters. And I think that's one of the reasons that the characters on Parks and Recreation always felt so lived in was because right. you knew how each one would bounce off of the other ones. Um I or the Halloween episode where uh where Anne learns from Ron Swanson how to fix everything in a house. Mm -hmm. And this feels to me like maybe something that came out of that organically. Like we're thinking, okay, we know how Adira relates to this character. We, we've seen her talk to, we've seen her talk to Burnham. We've seen her, you know, go through that whole trill thing. And she's going to be in the science lab a lot. And we have her, right. you know, we've seen her interact with Tilly a bit. Let's put her with Stamets. And what are the main things they have in common? What are the experiences that they can have that would relate to each other? And that I see dead people thing, it's like Stamets sees a dead person every day. Yeah. And I exactly. love the way that they brought that together. It was so natural. And it also felt like almost from a meta perspective, like from the LGBTQ plus community, almost like a passing of the torch yep. as well. You know, there's been a lot of high commendation from the parts of, of people like Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz about how Blue Del Barrio and Ian Alexander have like comported themselves in terms of the characters and the storylines and how that speaks to how much the queer community has grown and what's to come. But it really was just a natural fit. Not only, you know, it, it, I mean, it, had, it was sort of a sequel to Stamets being the one to get a deer out of that Jeffrey's tube and have them come forward about everything. Now, granted, that was a little bit of a different situation. They were not just bound, you know, bonding over mushrooms. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I and I love Stamets now being able to really talk a bit about something that he experienced so long ago, but was obviously so important when he said, you know, before Hugh died, I thought of life and death as this linear thing, a distinct beginning and end. Now I know that life will always surprise me. And so, I, again, it, it was like right place at the right time that Adira is just so freaked out about this of Gray is dead. I don't understand what's happening. And Stamets basically tells them in a sort of an odd and odd thing for Stamets in particular, like, just just go with the ride. You know, let let life present you with opportunities and just be grateful that you have the chance to see the person you love for one last time, albeit if it's one last time forever and ever. Yeah. And I was just thinking about how much I like Lou Del Barrio in this role and how much I'm liking this storyline in ways that I think in less capable hands, both in terms of the actor and in terms of the writing, a 16 year old mechanical genius who fixes the entire ship and is also a human with a trill symbiont and also can see mm -hmm. dead people like. 
what is the term for a non-binary Mary Sue? Like, yeah. <laughs> like this is really, I should hate this. I should be really annoyed by it, but it is done so delicately, both in the terms of the performance and the way that it is written, that I am really loving Adira and I'm loving the relationship and the way that, the way that Gray has kind of manifested himself as this sidekick that's helping Adira cope with all of these big changes. I, yeah, I think it's, it's incredibly well done. And I loved, I loved Stamets just kind of walking into the, into the mess hall and seeing Adira having this conversation with an invisible person. And he's just like, I'm just going to roll with it. And yeah. you don't hear Adira being like, yeah, I was talking to my boyfriend and he lives in Canada and you probably don't know him. <laughs> yeah. In space Canada. Yeah. Space Canada. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I was such an uh, unorthodox decision on behalf of Stamets, and I also really liked that we got the follow up scene between Stamets and Culber, who are wearing the cute matching burgundy Starfleet pajamas. <laughs> yeah. Where Culber essentially like therapizes and gets Stamets to basically admit, like, yeah, I'm sort of projecting myself onto Adira because I never got that support, and I want to give my support to someone that I saw myself in, and. It's it's a cool, you know, association. And I also like the fact that it's it's been sort of a slow assimilation for Adira as well. Like, it felt very natural that Adira had sort of taken a defensive position of, like, just put my head down and work in the ship. And again, we, we still don't know if Grey is a manifestation of, like, some part of Adira, almost like their Jim- Jiminy Cricket, or if this is indeed, like, the spirit of Grey. But I do like seeing more of Grey as well mm-hmm. through what, at least what the presentation of him is, of, you know, him being the one to poke Adira and be like, come on, there's so much cool stuff on the ship. And Adira's like, nope, got to reorganize this engine room. Uh, it, it was, a, again, another great distillation of those personalities that we saw in brief when we went into the, the Trill Pool that I hope we get to see more of as well. And they're doing a really great job of just really trickling in these small bits of character to not feel like it needs to be an overwhelming tsunami, uh, even like non-style of this is the person, this is who they are. This is why they're important and they're gone. Yeah. This, and it's, and it feels less lampshady than it does with somebody like Detmer, who's all of a sudden getting surfaced. And every week it's like, what's going on on the Detmer show? Okay. Back to the action. It's really, it feels more organic than that. Right before we get into everything going on with Giorgio, Jess, let's take a break, beam ourselves out Linus style, and hear from our sponsors. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh! Oh, sorry, Mike. I thought this was the mess hall. I'll, I'll get out. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, if you're here, might as well sit down. We're all sort of talking to invisible people, but that's just what podcasting is nowadays. That's, so join the crowd. You know, that's been 2020 for me, talking to people that aren't <laughs> in the room with me. Exactly. Listen, 
you know, we have jumped more forward to the 32nd century than I think we've realized only in the course of one year. Yeah, it it, it is. It's it's true. It's we've got our own strange new worlds. Um, yeah, we got to talk about the Giorgio of, all, of it all because something is happening to, to her and it's super duper weird. All right. So let, let me start with the theory that was presented to us. I, I can't remember the user, but, but brought up this great point on Twitter over the course of the weeks between episodes. Because we have to remember the timeline from last week was we saw Giorgio sit down with, with David Cronenberg and they sort of he broke all these hard truths to her. And then the next thing we saw was Giorgio on the ship. And she was super distant as Michael was talking to her. And we know that holograms are a plenty in the 32nd century. Jess, what are the chances that Giorgio was replaced with a hologram version of herself or some sort of AI version of herself and placed on the ship in her stead? I don't buy that. Although I know secret hologram is going to pay off eventually. Even if it mm-hmm. didn't in Picard. Yeah, damn it, Rios. God, I, I liked that theory so much, and I'm still mad it wasn't true. Um, But I don't think that Giorgio could be – like. Uh, granted, we have 32nd century technology, and by the end of DS9, you could have Vic Fontaine moving out of the holodeck, and mm-hmm. it was a thing. But I don't think we see her going down to the surface of a planet or getting on a ship without – Without that alerting somebody if she is a secret hologram. I I don't know that I buy that just for the reason that she has done so much stuff that is not above board. And she would have to be under deep, deep cover for that to be happening right now. All right. So then so then let's let's talk about what happened. So if this is indeed the real McCoy, what is going on with these flashes? Do you think these are flashbacks? Is this flashes of an alternate future? Flashes of the future? It's interesting to me that I I think this could be a few different things. And I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if this is something she is remembering from her previous life as Emperor of New Terra or <laughs> whatever her title was. I don't remember. If this is something she remembers or if this is a flash uh she's a terran and that is rare around here and they said they haven't had contact with the parallel universe for a very long time and it's drifted very far apart is she having some kind of telepathic connection to the terran universe or Mm. is she maybe remembering something that happened to the other Giorgio? Mm -hmm. yeah well because i'm trying to remember so i know that we saw flashes of some sort of symbol uh, which, you know, then culminated in the whole bloody body, Giorgio standing over it stuff. And I couldn't remember if that was the Terran logo. I don't think it was, but if it did, then that would, I think, directly just connect back to it, most likely being a flashback. But then it also brings up the question, if it's a flashback, and Giorgio was clearly living her best life and not caring about all the bad stuff she did before. Why would she be affected so profoundly by these memories? Yeah, this is not the Giorgio we have come to know and love. Like, she she ate a bunch of Kelpians. She ate Saru in the other universe yeah. and gave zero Fs about it. So And, and also enslaved them as well. Yeah. So, so she's even worse than the than the emerald chain right now because yeah. they at least don't eat their slaves. Yeah, she murdered people for shits and giggles, and she loved every second of it. And she does not appear to have had any 
moment of awakening. It's mostly she came back to this universe because she was probably going to get killed on the other one. She kind of ran away from her problems. I don't think we see her like feeling bad about murdering one person because how many thousands of people has she murdered in her previous incarnation as Empress of the Terran universe? So I have to think that this is something, this is some kind of glitch in the matrix for her that she is not like she's seeing somebody else's experience because something like that in her own experience would be a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's it's just interesting because the thing that I got and granted, I, I watched this without subtitles, which is always tough to do in Star Trek. I feel like when we saw her presiding over this body, blood in her hands, I thought she said son. I could have sworn she said son. Now, maybe the name of the person was son. I don't know. Again, it's Star Trek, uh, but... Subtitles do help you on this, Mike. I think she yeah. says San. Oh, uh, okay. So it's not... It's, it's not, not literally Sun. At least that's what the subtitles said. And the subtitles, you know, they're not always 100% correct, but that was what the subtitles said, as far as I re- recall. Here's another theory, Mike. Did David Cronenberg do something to her? Mm, Did he I, I honestly. Her? I mean, I think so. Another interesting caveat of all this is one of the things that Cronenberg said, or the Hollow People said last week, was that they discovered that there is like a Terran DNA structure that is mm-hmm. different from the Prime Universe. Could that mean that Cronenberg, in a very David Cronenberg way, performed like weird experiments on her? And now maybe, maybe these are indeed memories that she had or memories that she hid and whatever he did to her is like reactivating them or changing the way that she reacts to them as she would have before. Maybe these were repressed memories and he brought them out of her. Yeah. Like I think he did something. I, P.S. Mike, when you were calling him David Cronenberg over and over in the last podcast i was like yeah he does look like david cronenberg no that was actual david cronenberg no, that's, it's literally david cronenberg i still i haven't i i don't think I've, I've done any further research as to uh why <laughs> just just why <laughs> like this is not i don't think this is a Whoopi goldberg thing of like david cronenberg such a huge star trek <laughs> fan uh but it's it's just so odd it's so odd in so many ways but yes that is literally infamous Body horror director David Cronenberg in Star Trek. Yeah, who do we like better? Do we like David Cronenberg in Star Trek or do we like Werner Herzog in Star Wars? Uh, see, but Werner Herzog has such an interesting way of talking that, like, I'm always going to be more entertained by him, I think, than even Cronenberg's, like, weird uh, in- in eccentricities. So I-, I think I have to go with-, with Herzog in The Mandalorian, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I kind of feel that way too. Uh, but not to take anything away from the performance last week because it was super creepy. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, I I'm going with he did something to her that's causing all of this stuff to go into her head, whether it's her memories or somebody else's, and it's doing a number on her neurologically because we see her like actively pass out when they need her to do something. And honestly, if she hadn't passed out at that exact moment, this was like taking candy from a baby. Like. Burnham could have pulled this off. Burnham and Book could have pulled this off in their sleep. It really yeah. didn't seem like they were yeah. having much trouble with it at all. Yeah, to the point where they, they, you know, they once again did shorthand of, of referring to an experience they had before yeah. off screen that clearly, I don't know, I guess they did another space Attica back in the day of like some sort of prison break situation. But yeah, it, it would have gone fine had Giorgio not passed out for that half a second. And I was, 
I was definitely like face palming a bit Picard style, like, oh, great, this all got screwed up. I mean, I didn't expect like book to die or anything, but I could have imagined this getting expanded more if because Giorgio passed out in that one particular moment, the whole plan got shot to sunshine. Luckily, she got up like two seconds later. But yeah, other other things could have happened in the meantime. Yeah, that was another point where I felt like I thought I knew it was going to happen. Like I thought that was going to mean that not everybody got out of the prison or that book was the only one that escaped. And it would be like some horrible grief thing of like, oh, we killed all the slaves before they could taste freedom. But yeah, it really didn't affect anything like her passing out for two seconds really didn't ultimately have much of an effect on what happened. All right. So so I've been thinking about it a bit more of our conversation. So here's my Giorgio theory that Cronenberg got in there because as not only the sole Terran aboard the ship, but the first Terran they've seen in half a millennium, she is a hot commodity and she's also a secret weapon of ruthlessness and bloodthirstiness. My thought is Cronenberg like knocked her out, futzed with her DNA a bit because again, it's the 32nd century. They can absolutely do Mm -hmm. that and maybe flipped one too many switches that they were trying to like get a like Manchurian candidate her almost to get her to take out the Emerald chain and be like sort of that, the, the brass knuckles of the Federation. But now they have activated like some system of repressed memories inside her that has caused her to now sort of like drift off into a state of emotion that she did not experience prior to their interrogation. Yeah. I could buy that. She's been Manchurian candidated. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I could also buy that they were like trying to take something out of her head, like instructions on how to get to the Terran universe. Like maybe they've Mm -hmm. forgotten how to do that or maybe they figure, well, it can't be any worse than the one we're living in right now. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe they feel like that's going to, we talked about this last time, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, that's going to be like a secret weapon of let's hop over, recruit a bunch of people, come back and just take out the entire Emerald chain. Cause these are, these are loyal foot soldiers as it were. And she could be the key to it. But maybe they just didn't expect it to be as complicated as it was, because as Cronenberg said, like in his lifetime, he's never seen one. It's all been theoretical. And I could imagine once you actually get the person in front of you, it turns out to be a bit different than what you've read about. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, Mike, what if the what if the Terran universe right now is just like the utopia that we thought the Federation was going to be like? What yeah. if this is the bad universe and that's the good universe? I mean, that's the point, right, is that the mirror universe was supposed to be the mirror opposite. Mm-hmm. So I could see if things are real crappy in 3189 here, I could imagine 3189 mirror universe, especially maybe missing an emperor, Giorgio. Now they're just like, wow, this is awesome. We're having a great time. Kelpians are running about free. Mork <laughs> is gone. You know, uh, Giorgio's gone. Like, this is fantastic. Yeah, like they took all the bad people and put them in the other universe. And now everything's awesome. It was interesting that there was a callback to when uh, Giorgio, you know, when Michael confronts Giorgio about the the flashes and Giorgio sort of, well, open, lets down her walls a little bit, eventually puts it back up by saying, like, you know, I, I trusted him, I'm Michael Burnham long ago and look where it happened. Because we forget that there was indeed a mirror universe Michael Burnham. She was dead by the time they made the crossover because mirror Michael Burnham betrayed Giorgio, defected alongside mirror Lorca, aka who we thought was prime universe Lorca. And so that was clearly like, she has these very weird complications around prime universe, Michael Burnham in that she still sees her as that child. But at the same time, this is a a child to a version of whom did something very, very bad to her once upon a time. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting that 
Michael Burnham is just a betrayer in every universe. Yeah, exactly. Man, no matter what universe you're in, Michael Burnham is going to go rogue. You know, death taxes and Michael Burnham going rogue. Those are the three things guaranteed in any universe you live in. Yep, totally fair. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some Easter eggs. I think we're kind of winding yes. down as far as um, as far as the actual plot. I think there's not much more to dive into here, mm-hmm. but I did want to I did want to point out that it did not escape me when there was a shout out to self stealing self sealing stem bolts. Yes, I was so excited by hearing that. It's it's such a nerdy thing to do in the middle of a show, and it just it just shows that they are really courting the super fans with that. Yeah, exactly. Luckily, I don't know if we saw any Yamek sauce, uh, you know, being <laughs> distributed at the mess hall in the prison camp, if only. Yeah, that that's that's an episode I need to watch again. So for the uninitiated, um, this is a recurring joke on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. There's a point where Jake and Nog decide to go into business together and mm-hmm. they acquire a warehouse full of self-sealing stem bolts. And then there there's an episode where they go on this odyssey to try to trade the stem bolts for something that they can that they can actually use or sell or profit from. And it kind of goes back all the way back around until they end up with the stem bolts again. And then throughout the remainder of star trek deep space nine there anytime somebody has like some random useless thing it is a self-sealing stem bolt and to the point where you're like i don't even know what that would be or why we would need it yeah i remember there was something i think uh when we find out in i want to say like the season five finale maybe that uh you know the the julian bashir actually in a very mirror universe way the julian bashir that we saw was actually a changeling for yep. a while and the real julian bashir was captured in the gamma quadrant he was like oh yeah i have to escape like i think this is a self-sealing stem bolt and it's just like it's it, it follows you even into other quadrants yep. so that was like a fun a great runner throughout deep space mind that i'm very glad made its way into disco proper yeah, I was very excited by that. And the other one, I don't think this is an Easter egg so much as I appreciated the realism of it. Um, it was a great fight scene this week. Like, I, I kind of roll my eyes at the number of fight scenes that we get, but we see Michael Burnham getting into a chokehold. And then doing something they teach you on the first day of Krav Maga class, uh, puts her arms up and breaks the chokehold by coming up like in between the guy's arms. And I'm like, you could use that in real life. Like that is, they're teaching you useful things on Star Trek. That's a real Mm. move that if anybody ever gets you in a chokehold, that's how you get out of it. Really, Rex Kwando, you break the wrist and you walk away. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I thought this was, this seemed more unique to me than the other fights that we've had this season i yes we did have Giorgio and michael get involved with usually seem to be the the prime suspects but maybe it's just because it was more of like a two-on-two or specifically a two-on-one that it felt different than the usual like pylon we've experienced beforehand yeah that that is true and it also felt like it was more defensive like mm-hmm. you've seen like you've seen the the fight start and Giorgio just kind of jumps up and like breaks the guy's neck with her legs side draw style and this felt a lot more like they could have gotten overpowered and they needed to actually just like do the most efficient thing. And sometimes I think these fight scenes get very Baroque and this one was very like to the point, like we're going to do the thing to get them out. And that's very Krav Maga. Speaking of Easter eggs, this is not too Star Trek, but I did seem to pick up on someone down on the planet who had a helmet. This was uh, tweeted out by, by Trek Corps as well on Twitter that there was someone down on the planet who looked a lot like Dark Helmet from Spaceballs. <laughs> Amazing. 
Amazing. So he was he was able to. I'm glad they were able to to make some spaceballs references uh, within the larger planet. I mean, evidently, I guess this this is the universe where after Mega Maid destructs, uh, you know, I guess poor Dark Helmet ends up on this planet and gets enslaved for the rest of his life. But you know, it's a it's a bleak future for him. But considering what he's done, I don't exactly you know I'm not too particularly sad about it. Yeah, I guess not. Um, and you know, maybe next week we'll see Burnham and Book combing the desert looking for looking for that last black box. They ain't found shit. Yeah, it's true. Uh, were you surprised that the black box was that small? Like, I guess I don't know what a black box looks like or what one would look like in the future, but that seemed really small. I'm just surprised that ships have black boxes still. I guess that's a technology that has persisted through th- literally thousands of years at this point. I mean, I guess it is, though I did also, uh, I'm surprised that you're not prompt the typical stand-up joke of like, why is it the starship built out of the same material as the black box? <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. I'm like, didn't they figure out at some point in the future how to make the whole ship out of the black box stuff? No, that's still a mystery that has eluded them. So yeah, I mean, first of all, the black box looked like a vape pen. Uh, which I guess, like, they really wanted to be cool then. I mean, the black box theory is really interesting, right? It, it's Burnham really trying to go f- go full loose change here and try to figure out, like, if there was an instigator or, like, a starting point for the burn. Uh, so it's it's an interesting theory, and I guess it's sort of been Michael's main drive it, during the gap year. Uh, I, I just, maybe, again, the, the thought did not glance my mind of the idea of black boxes. That would be obviously the thing to go to Unless they could easily be tampered with, because if that's the case, then that just sends you on a complete wild goose chase. Well, you know, by the time DS9 rolled around, again, not to keep bringing it back to DS9, but you could fake you could fake that kind of data back then. So Yeah, you, you could fake that com footage, right? Of like, oh yeah, Miles O'Brien has been here the entire time. He hasn't been, you know, <laughs> trapped down on the planet. Yeah, or, you know, the Romulans were totally in cahoots with the Dominion. Oh yeah, that's true as yeah. well. Yeah, so, so there's an easy, easy ability to fake footage why not fake a black box and maybe that's a thing as well as that and that'll be even more tragic as if michael burnham vociferously pursues this this line of thinking that has her betraying so many friendships and it turns out that it was all forgery man that would be sad yeah i don't think that's the direction we're going in and that's not what the show likes to do with michael burnham the show likes to say well she does all this crap but she is ultimately right Right. yeah she was wrong that one time and ended up starting a huge war but apart from that she's right i can't believe we're halfway through the season right now jess and that's the thing as well as i would i would say like yeah i think that would also doesn't help that we're halfway through the season so i don't think we're we haven't even though it's still seven episodes it's it's only seven episodes so i don't think you can necessarily set up the rug pull of like hey the black box thing was fake the whole time yeah, I, I don't think that's where we're going with that. But I do think that I, I'm enjoying like, I don't think that it's just going to be like she can triangulate the location and then she's going to solve it. I think there's got to be way more to it. And, you know, that's not very many episodes to solve this problem, but it's enough. So we're half a season in and and I think that, you know, we can obviously answer this question much more fully once we know the full picture of the season. Is this the best season of Disco so far? in your opinion, six episodes in? It's a good question, and I'm not sure. I mean, nothing's going to top season one for sheer bonkersness. Right. I think if you're looking at, like, true wackadoo twists in Star Trek history, I think season one has to be up there. Yeah, and that was the thing that pulled me into disco in the first place, was just the fact that, like, people would concoct these totally deranged fan theories that would then turn out to be right. Mm -hmm. And... 
I really loved that about season one. And there's not been anything quite so bonkers in season three, but I am enjoying it so much. And there's so much of it that is taking Star Trek in a new direction that I am. And it's the direction that I think we need right now. So for that, I really, I don't know if I could rank the seasons, but I would say that I really love this one and I like where we're going with it. I think this season at this point, again, six episodes in, has its feet on the ground much more than the first two seasons. Where it does feel like, I think in the first two seasons, the pace of discovery was so stop and start. We're like, we've talked about this before, where the first five or six episodes, they'll spend really crawling through stuff happening and then like they'll hit a pocket in episode seven or eight and then just speed through the rest where it just seems like so much happens at once and i talked about this with the adira storyline but i feel like it's emblematic of of the really the entire season so far like they've done a great job of really feeding us stuff one bit at a time yes the burn stuff has really moved nowhere but it seems like we might be going somewhere It, it feels like the show is more confident in how they want to pace things out as opposed to even something like season two where like through five episodes, we had discovered like three of the signals. Uh, Hugh got brought back. Tilly was seeing somebody and then got brought into the mycelial network. Like so much stuff went on, you know, quickly to the point where we really disregard it by the end of the season. Whereas here, this is going to feel like more of a solid product, I think, from start to end, which makes me more satisfied from just a story structure perspective. Yeah, well, you just reminded me that Tilly did see someone for a long time. I, is Tilly going to get inducted into the I See Dead People Club? I you See, I guess that's the question, because I think I'm trying to remember, because Stamets was one of the people who, like, worked firsthand on that operation, right, to help her. So, yeah, yeah he might he might induct her into the club. Maybe they've been meeting in secret. We just haven't seen it. Maybe that's why they're so close together. Maybe Jet Reno also has that issue, and that's why she's been, they've sort of been like a nice three-headed monster in engineering. So, yeah, maybe there's an entire, like, group therapy thing that Adira can go to that they weren't aware of beforehand. Yeah, like they they probably, you know, they just go to whatever passes for a bar on Discovery and they just like sit around and and drink the synth ale and talk about their experiences confronting the other side. I'm trying to remember. I don't think they have a bar, but I'm trying to remember where that party was. Oh, in, yeah. In the, in the, it was time in the conference jump. room. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the Groundhog Day episode. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. They might have cleared out the mess hall for it. I can't yeah. remember. That's interesting. I, I thought that had like real conference room, uh, conference room potluck energy. Yeah, very much like a multi-purpose room, right? Of like, hey, you have to book the space for the the party with the antiquated music. Yep, yep. You have to block that off on Outlook. Yeah, exactly. On Space Outlook. Yep, on Space Outlook. So speaking of antiquated technology, Mike, uh, back here in the 21st century, we mostly truck in email and Twitter, don't we? Yes, exactly. So if you want to write to us, uh, you can on Twitter using at uh, Post Recaps, or you can tweet us at Haymaker Hattie for Jess, at a Mike Bloom type myself. Or if you want to talk with us more directly and have several conversations about several other invigorating topics, feel free to become a patron of Post Show Recaps because one of the benefits at the $10 level is you get to join our Post Show Recaps Discord channel where things are hopping. We are talking Star Trek. We're talking Star Wars. We're talking Lost. We're talking Marvel. We're talking really anything and everything on TV to the point where there's even games of Among Us that happen. So if you want a bunch of malarkey to go down on spaceships without a Star Trek uh, direct sphere of influence, you can do so. And there's just so many benefits to becoming a patron of Post Show Recaps. We're nearing the two-month mark, and we are so grateful for the people we have had on board. But of course, 
We are always looking for more. We are a 32nd century starship. We can support at least 2,000 people. Yeah, I, I think I think if we get 2,000 people, we're going to have to start a new Star Trek podcast. Yeah, exactly. Just, just that'll be, and that'll be. Uh, I'll talk to Josh about adding a new, some new limit to that. But yeah, there's, there's so much great stuff going on. Plus, you get to support the work that Jess and myself and all the other great hosts are doing as well. So if you have the ability to do so, you know we are approaching the end of the month. Our recommendation is always to do so at the beginning of the month. So spoiler alert, you'll get this spiel again since we still have one more episode to record in November proper. But Give it some thoughts, you know, especially around the holidays. There's a lot of stuff going on, including Josh is going to be doing a live watch along on Thanksgiving Day of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So if you want to get away from gluttony by talking about gluttony uh, with one of our, our fantastic hosts here on Posher Recaps, become a patron and become part of the Discord. That and many more fun activities happen when you're a patron. It's a great time. And once we get once we hit that 2000 patron mark, we're going to get detached in the cells for this podcast. Exactly. We're just going to all be our squares are going to be floating out here in the stream yard link that just, you know, saving space and saving energy as well. Yep. I love that, Mike. So uh, I want to thank you for joining me once again on this very fun journey that we've had. And I want to also give a shout out to before we get going and blast off into the unknown um if you have not done so already pop into the itunes store and rate the podcast because the more ratings we get the better our visibility is we bring more people into the fold we like we're breaking them out of prison and putting them on our ship and flying off with them so we would love to hear from you in that regard as well and i think that is the last thing we need to do before we pull on out of here before they reactivate the sonic fence mike all right. Sounds good. I don't want to lose my head, at least not more than I have in 2020. Yeah, I think we all need to avoid those opportunities to lose our heads. So thanks again, Mike. And thanks to all the listeners. Thank you, especially to the patrons of Post Show Recaps. Live long and prosper, everyone. And we'll see you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.